the resurrection of Jesus and religious pluralism. The text is Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to read verses 33 to 46. Matthew 21, 33. Hear another parable. So Jesus is the speaker telling this story. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away to another country. And when the season for fruit grew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They, this is the religious leaders answering Jesus, they said to him, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now, Jesus speaks, and this isn't parable now. This is Jesus teaching now. 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? He always felt that people needed to know their Bibles better than they knew them. Quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. God did this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus still speaks. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Can you imagine how they felt when he said this? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And then these words... And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is still Jesus talking. Look at the reaction, 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they, that's the crowds, held him to be a prophet. All right. Put yourself, just for a minute, in Athens. It's 25 years after the death of Jesus. You're a religious thinker, an open-minded religious thinker. You love to sit and think and talk about religion. You love to hear about the religious experiences and ideas of people around you. You don't judge those views. You don't want to impose your views on anyone else. You embrace all the various forms of good in all the world's religions. You find it fascinating to hear the talk about God, to compare people's ideas and experiences. Maybe you can learn something beneficial from them something that will enrich your own religious life, broaden your horizons, help you to cope a little better 
put, like the Cardinal said, the smile and the sunshine of Easter on your face. You certainly don't want to be one of those intolerant, dogmatic, religious people. And as you sit there in Athens, a man steps to the forefront, a man named Paul, comes to the Areopagus, the center of learned debate and conversation. And after listening for a little while, Paul goes to the front and he says, he says something like this. He says, I worship Jesus Christ. He was a Jewish teacher and wonder worker. He lived in Palestine about 25 years ago, and he taught a way of love and truth. He taught about God in a way that enriched my life. He had great wisdom, and even in his dying, he never gave any sign of anger or vengeance. I hear that he actually asked for forgiveness for the people who were crucifying him. And to this day, his teaching seems to gather a lot of followers, he was a great example. He's been a tremendous influence on my life. And I think he'd be helpful to all of you if you'll just meditate on the things Jesus said. And then Paul turns around and he sits down, period. What would the response have been to those words? What would have been the reaction of the crowd? Well, nods, probably, a lot of agreement maybe some discussion on a few points, but overall there'd be polite recognition and thankfulness. I mean, this certainly had helped Paul out. Remember, he used to persecute the church. He's just so much nicer to be around now than a few years back. God bless him. But what if instead of that, you still with me? What if instead of that, Paul had gotten up and said something like this, quote, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In the times of ignorance, God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given insurance to all by raising him from the dead. Well, that's different. In fact, what I read are the exact words of Paul quoted from Acts 17, 24 to 31. And the people didn't like it. They began to shout Paul down like angry students at Yale University. And here's why. Like it or not, those words are more than polite discussion, they're a pronouncement. They, they declare there's nothing in them that negotiates. They're words that are tailor-made not to begin a discussion, but to end a discussion. 
No matter who speaks them, those words will make the Athenians stop nodding in AD 25. They'll make your classmates stop nodding in 2022. The people in the office, the people you work with, the people you meet, nobody likes those kinds of words. Christianity is uniquely offensive in our pluralistic age. And that's because the New Testament, in the New Testament, it, it just hangs everything on very narrow, particular, factual bits of real history, not the impressions of the heart and the psychological opinions of speculators. Years ago now, Charles Colson's old words are true. Christianity doesn't just come to inform you, it confronts you. It hits you between the eyes because it says, the really marvelous and important things in life aren't the feelings of the heart, but the facts of history. There's a world of difference between a subjective religious discussion and an objective historic resurrection from the dead. Yeah. Public opinion can do nothing to change a historic event, whether people like it or hate it. This is always the message of Easter. Easter says it's all very nice how you feel about God, how you feel about life. It's all well and good that you find purpose and fulfillment, but that's not the main thing. The chief thing isn't how you feel about God. The chief thing isn't even how you feel about yourself. The chief thing is what God has done for you in real space-time history. The chief thing is what he himself has revealed about his intended meaning in these historic events. What I want to do is I want to look at four marvelous truths from our opening text. Look at Matthew 21, 42. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected, that's the crucifixion, has become the cornerstone? Look at This was who's doing? It's the Lord's doing. This is God's plan. And it is marvelous in our eyes. I want to look at that verse in context, in the context of the parable, okay, where Jesus actually uses those words. And then I want to look at how Peter interprets those same words again as we wrap up. Point number one. These words of Jesus come at the end of a parable that he told about a vineyard owner with very wicked servants. I read the whole story. I read it because it is the one of only three parables that's repeated in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That tells us something. Probably because its truths form the essential core of Christian belief. The vineyard is Israel. We know that. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. 
The vineyard is Israel representing the people of God. God owns the vineyard. We know that from the parable. We see his great love for his people in the way that he sends messenger after messenger to receive fruit. And the wicked tenants kill all the owner's messengers. Okay, that's the story. And really, it's amazing that the owner would continue to send messengers. Would you? It's, it's, it's your land. Why not just destroy the tenants after the first rejection of your messenger? Why not just go and end it? We'll really never know. But this owner of the vineyard, he keeps trying. <laughs> Sends a whole bunch of messengers. Finally, you know the story. He sends his own son. We're meant to pay attention to that word. It's right in the parable where it says, finally. You know what that means? It means the son, the son is the last offer. There will be no other offers, right? Finally, at the end, last chance, we're meant to see that everything hinges on what they do with the son. Please remember that sentence. Everything hinges, last chance, everything hinges on what they do with the son. There are lots of messengers, but only one son is sent. What they do with the son determines everything about their future. That's how the parable ends. So in story form, tells of the mission of Jesus. It tells what the people did to Jesus. It tells us that Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is different from the messengers. Every religion on the planet has respect for Jesus. They want to make him a messenger, a prophet. But he's not a messenger. He's the son. There were lots of messengers, one son. Religion will always go off track when it confuses the son with the messengers. They're not the same thing. So in Jesus' parable, they killed the son. Point number two, Jesus tells us what happens to that murdered owner's son to point to his own future, his own life, death, and resurrection from the dead. Look at 21, 42, sorry, again, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quotes these words from Psalm 118. That's where he gets them. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So the point here is this rising cornerstone being rejected but rising it's not some fringe teaching. It's a central theme of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But even that isn't the end of those words in the Bible. Peter picks up the very same words and interprets them for us in Acts chapter 4. Most of you know the story of 
Peter and John on their way to the temple. It's one of those classic Sunday school accounts. There's a lame man by the road. Silver and gold have I none, right? Such as I have in the name of Jesus, rise up, walk. And because it's in the name of Jesus, you know what happens to them? They heal a man. What do you do with people like that? Well, you put them in prison, of course. That's what they did with Peter and John. They're arrested. They're warned about doing these things and stirring up people. And then they're asked, by what power? By what power have you performed this miracle? Pick up Peter's answer. Let's just read it. Acts 4, 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, and he doesn't back down, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and here's Gutsy, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, there's Easter, by him, this man is standing before you well. You'd think, you'd think he'd have the good sense to leave it there, but he doesn't. Here's the quote again. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders is Psalm 18, and Peter focuses in, you. Which has become the cornerstone, and these words, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So this idea of the rejected stone becoming the, the, the cornerstone, it's repeated so far three times. Before a hand is laid on Jesus, he knows and he says that this stone, speaking about his own body, will be killed, but it will rise. He says this stone is going to be the chief cornerstone in the whole structure. We're going to look at some disturbing truths about those words in a moment. But before we do that, let me just... Let me just ponder two ideas under this second point. So this is A and B, if you, some people write these things down. A, the first truth most of us already know and expect, Jesus rose from the dead. That's what Easter is all about. It's his day like none other. He was, he was born into this world on Christmas. But he became the firstborn from the dead on Easter. But what does Christ's resurrection from the dead have to do with, with me, with you? I mean, I mean, why has he risen? Well, gloriously, it means that I too will live. He, he is uniquely qualified to give eternal life. He, he makes... He makes death work backwards for those who put their hope and trust in him. 
He gives internal life to those who will obey him. Here's this eternally precious truth, church. Don't let anybody snatch it from your hand. My body will be raised up as literally as Jesus' body was raised. Everybody got it? Just as literally. I'm not talking about your spirit floating around somewhere, getting in touch with your karma or gazing on your navel and meditating on... I'm talking about this body. Jesus' body came out of the grave. It's going to happen. But there's something else. There's something else. B... This risen cornerstone becomes the judge of all who rejected him. They killed the son in Jesus' parable in Matthew 21. And that's the end of the parable until, until Jesus utters those important words about the rising of the rejected stone to the position of cornerstone. And then Jesus says something about the role of that cornerstone. It's in verse 44, and the, look at these words. The one who, who falls on this stone will be, I didn't say this, this is Jesus, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, what is that about? Like, you can't pretend Jesus didn't say this. They're pretty strong words. I think Paul explains the meaning of those words in his speech to those religious thinkers in Athens. We looked at them where he says, the times of ignorance, that's before Jesus came, died, rose. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people Everywhere. Notice the repetition. If you just said all people, that includes everywhere. And if you said people everywhere, it includes everybody. But all people everywhere, that really covers everybody. He commands all people. People in Newmarket. People in Israel. People in Iraq. People in Canada. All people everywhere. This isn't a parochial religion for people who kind of were raised in a Christian Canadian atmosphere. This is, this is everybody everywhere. They all have to repent. Why? Well, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge how many people? Well, that many. The world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. How do we know who this is going to be? Well, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's not a lot of people that fit in that bracket. The risen son becomes the judge of all men. Those who believe in him, those who don't believe in him, those who love him, those who don't love him, those who choose to live life thinking about him, those who choose to never think about him. That's what this reference of the cornerstone is all about. The cornerstone then determined the, the foundation, the structure of every other stone in the building. That's why this particular promise, the promise about Jesus becoming the chief cornerstone after his crucifixion, it's repeated over and over again so we don't miss 
the wonder and the power of this Easter season. Let me close today looking again at Peter's words, the same words Jesus used in his parable about the owner and the tenants and the son. Here's Peter. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man, this one that was healed, is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Let it be known to all of you. I wish that could be on every TV broadcast. I wish you could go up and down Main Street and Newmarket. Let this be known to all of you. Something everyone has to know. You don't have to know everything. You have to know this. Jesus is not only the cornerstone for those who happen to live in Western culture or who are interested in pursuing a study of Christianity in a comparative religions class. No. We know that because these men to whom Peter spoke already had their religion. They were devoutly religious people. Jesus overturns all of it. People must now not only forsake their immorality, they must not only forsake their dishonesty, they have to turn from their religions and their philosophies, and they have to acknowledge Christ Jesus as Lord of all. And Easter is proof. He'll be the judge of all men. How do you know? God gave a pretty good sign by raising him from the dead. You don't have to be right about everybody, but you have to be right about Jesus. You just have to be right about Jesus. He will judge all when he returns.